We, Russian workers and soldiers, united in the Petrograd Soviet of the Workers and Soldiers Deputies, send you the warmest greetings and announce the great event. The Russian democracy has shattered in the dust the age-long despotism of the Tsar and enters your family of nations as an equal and as a mighty force in the struggle for our common liberation. Our victory is a great victory for freedom and for the democracy of the world. Toilers of all countries, we hold out to you the hand of brotherhood across the mountains of our brothers' corpses, across the rivers of innocent blood and tears, over the smoking ruins of cities and villages, and over the wreckage of the treasuries of civilizations. We appeal to you for the re-establishment and strengthening of international unity. In it is the pledge of our future victories and the complete liberation of all humanity. Proletariats of all countries unite. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is Labour, 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 Welcome to Labour Days. Uh, I'm Daniel, joined as usual by Ellie, who you heard reading the quotation in the uh, cold open there, uh, Ed and our producer Liam. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be looking at how trade unionists and their unions around the world responded to the Russian Revolution. As most of our listeners probably know, 2017 is the centenary of the revolutionary year and we're recording this episode shortly after the actual centenary of the October Revolution itself. Uh, in the interests of declaring our biases, uh, I think it's fair to say that all of us involved in Labour Day see the October Revolution as one of the most emancipatory moments in human history. Now, that probably sounds a little grandiose, but I think it's necessary to pose things in those terms in order to cut against what is perhaps the prevailing historiography of 1917, uh, which is that it was a a kind of anti-democratic coup. Uh, We believe the opposite is the case. 1917, in our view, was a moment when a mass movement of working class people rose up to become masters of their own destinies. Um, And we should also add that we believe Stalinism, uh, the barbaric, Uh, system that the experiment of 1917 degenerated into from the mid-twenties onwards uh, represented an overthrow of the revolutionary ideals of October rather than their continuation. So with our stall very firmly set out, I'm just going to kind of introduce uh, today's episode. Uh, We wanted to cover 1917 on the show not only to mark the centenary but also to try to play some small part in in reclaiming 1917 and the Russian Revolution as as a labour movement trade union event. With political culture in the labour movement at a relatively low level, the great world-changing moments in class struggle uh, history can can seem quite distant to us. But the Russian Revolution was, in essence, about a labour movement winning social and economic power. Uh, While political parties, and principally the Bolsheviks, played an irreplaceable role, trade unions, both in Russia itself and internationally, uh, were also central, uh, both to making the revolution uh, and to supporting it. Uh, It's that latter aspect that we're going to be focusing on today. Uh, There are plentiful contemporary sources and subsequent analysis of the direct role that Russian trade unions played in the events of 1917 within Russia itself. And we'll put some links for suggested reading in the episode description. But our show today is going to focus on how groups of workers around the world, via their trade unions and wider labour movements, responded to the events of 1917. Uh, It's a history that we think deserves to be more widely known and which contains some inspiring moments of working class solidarity. In traditional Labour Day style, it's primarily going to take the form of a a presentation from the professor here. So if you're listening to this, you need to imagine Ed kind of stood at the front of a big lecture hall and me and Ellie are going to be his sort of assistants, maybe changing slides, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, with with all of that set up, 
And without further ado, over to you, Ed. In Russia in 1917, there were two revolutions. There was uh, the February or March revolution, and then the October or November revolution, <laughs> uh, depending on whether you're using the old calendar or the new calendar. Um, the first revolution gave rise to the uh, statement that we heard at the beginning, which was the Petrograd Soviet's appeal to the peoples of the world. Um, that was an appeal not to the governments of the world, but directly to the labour movements of the combatant countries in the First World War, because, of course, the Russian Revolution broke out in the middle of the First World War, and it was direct appeal for the European labour movement in particular to rediscover its fighting spirit, to take up the struggle against the war, which uh, large sections of the labour movement had uh, shamefully abandoned when the war broke out, uh, and to assist the Russian working class in, it, in its sort of uh, uh, revolutionary task. Um, the February Revolution, the overthrow of the Tsar, was universally welcomed across 99% of uh, labour movement opinion in, in any country because even if you were one of the people uh, in the labour trade union movement who supported the war, of which there were many, Russia was an embarrassment because... If you're in Britain or France, who were allied to Russia, you were supposed to be fighting against the anti-democratic Prussian militarism of, of Germany, but you had on your own side uh, a state which was arguably much more repressive than Imperial Germany. So the sort of pro-war wing of the Labour movement almost kind of breathed a sigh of relief when the Tsar was overthrown because they could then say in their propaganda, well, now we're really fighting for democracy because mm. Russia has become a, has become a democracy. Um, and for the anti-war wing of the Labour movement, again, it was a big, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a huge deal because because of the sort of language that uh, was put out in that, in that statement, uh, because of the sort of... Um, the idea that the war could be ended became something more than a sort of vague aspiration and, and became a possibility. People were talking about it. People were talking about it as a, what, what can we do now in our own countries to, to make sure the war ends sooner rather than later. Um, it's easy, you know, Daniel sort of mentioned this in the intro, it's, it's easy to sort of, uh, it's what E.P. Thompson called the condescension of history, you know, the, the sort of, you look back on something and you think, oh, that all sort of ended shit, didn't it? So why did why was everyone so bothered about it? You know, why did everyone like bust a gut trying to make this happen? But didn't they know that like ten years later it would all be like in tatters? <laughs> yeah, um, and, of, and of course they didn't. Um, Nye Bevan, who was very far from being a revolutionary socialist, of course, uh, in later years, he he remembered at the time, you know, so, uh, miners in South Wales, sort of greeting each other in the street and, like, crying with joy, having heard that mm. the, the Tsar had been overthrown. And that's, that tells you a lot about the internationalism of people as well, I think, because obviously this is a country that's thousands of miles away that none of them, pretty much none of them would ever have been to or perhaps even met anyone from. And they were so they were so happy that the, the most repressive anti-working-class regime probably in the world at that point had been, had been overthrown. Um, I know that this is like you you can't imagine that can you today and I know that this is like such a, a a kind of cliche thing to say but in in an age where we have like untold information and we know everything about every country at every moment mm. we have the kind of 
almost like the least feeling of like brotherhood across nations. You could you couldn't imagine like a, a a dictatorship falling today or whatever and people going out into the streets and crying about it unless they were actually in that country or connected to that country somehow. Yeah. yeah. I mean I guess, I guess the, I, I do I do remember some uh, I, can't, I can't remember what it was a demonstration for. It was around the time of the Arab Spring and the, the fall of Mubarak's government. I think it might have been a student demonstration around fees that a big section of kind of broke away and marched down to the Egyptian, marched down to the Egyptian, em yeah. the Egyptian embassy. And around that time, I think there was a sort of, you know, there was a kind of, you know, a sort of solidaristic consciousness about, about what was going on in, you know, the countries. But I, you know, I don't think it was on the scale that Ed's talking about here in, 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 in recounting that little anecdote from, from Bevan. I guess that's, just something we've got to rebuild, isn't it? That sense of class solidarity, that our struggles are connected to the struggles of of of, pe of other people over the world, and that you know we kind of share an interest in seeing them win. Yeah, yeah. So, so immediately after the uh, the um, the czar was overthrown, um, obviously this because they were it wasn't an era of instant information, and it wasn't an era of uh, of the internet and all the rest of it. Um, people didn't really know what was going on beyond sort of sporadic newspaper reports and various sort of statements that were coming out from various organisations and stuff like that. The one thing they knew was that the Tsar had abdicated and there was a provisional government and it looked like Russia was moving in a, a sort of democratic direction. So there were, there were huge um, rallies, there were marches uh, in Britain and in other countries. There's a big rally at the Albert Hall um, where the speakers were all kind of... Um, prominent labour movement figures, people like George Lansbury and uh, Robert Williams and people like that. Um, and also uh, a couple of liberal, like liberals who were really enthusiastic about mm. the, the first revolution as well. So um, uh, Josiah Wedgwood, who was the, uh, uh, an MP, a liberal MP, um, who was the sort of uh, heir to the Wedgwood pottery uh, uh, fortune. So, uh, like an actual industrialist <laughs> was on the platform with Lansbury and then was saying was saying how great it all was and, and all the rest of it. I mean, I, well, like, we shouldn't dwell on this, but just sort of just in passing, yeah, I think it is a, a real indictment of how uh, <laughs> of how much kind of sort of bourgeois liberalism has degenerated politically. Because if you look, you know, who are the kind of equivalents of Josiah Wedgwood today? I don't know, Nick yeah. Clegg, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know what Nick Clegg said about the Arab Spring, for example, but you can't imagine a kind of contemporary liberal being enthusiastic about a kind of mass social uprising that sort of overthrows a government. You know, I'm, I'm sure they'd be saying, oh, you know, everyone must be careful. Steady on. Yeah, exactly, exactly, all that sort of thing. So it's just, thinking, you know, yet, yet more uh, evidence of why things were better in the past. <laughs> Even even the board, even the, board <laughs> like the ruling class ain't what it used to be. <laughs> um, so this sort of this sort of activity, sort of um, it's it, it built up into um, a convention that was held uh, in Leeds on the third of June, nineteen seventeen, um, where so to put this in context, so that there, there just had been a huge this came at the tail end of a huge um, engineer strike in in across. Uh, a lot of England uh, in the munitions factories at a time when under the laws that were in force uh, in the First World War like going on strike was basically like 
all, all the, it was it was like sedition basically mm. you could you could be in prison for doing it if Ed if people wanted to read more about that engineer strike is there is there is there a, a pamphlet or, or a, a text you could recommend there will be a, a, a there is a forthcoming pamphlet is there? Uh, written by uh, Ed Mustill yeah? <laughs> uh, about the Sheffield Who's Workers that? Committee um, of of which more on a future episode if, if I have anything to <laughs> um, so there was already sort of before the Russian Revolution a kind of a, the labour movement had sort of been in abeyance for the first couple of years of the mm. war and it, it had begun to find its feet as the sort of conditions of the war sort of bit into like the lives of everyday families and, and you know people were losing people at the front they were losing, you know, there wasn't much food at home, That you know, there was a, you know. So it wasn't just everyone was sort of sitting on their hands and then the Russian Revolution happened and suddenly that sparked everyone into life. It was, it was already a sort of in motion a little bit. It's probably also worth pointing out, isn't it, that the sort of, the, 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 the kind of immense, like, fracturings that were seen in European labour movements around the time of the start of the war, you know, the, both the political and industrial wings of, of, of many European labour movements sort of crack down the middle over the question of what attitude to take to the First World War. You know, those debates played out in Britain, but they didn't quite... There, there, there wasn't quite the same dynamic, you know, um, yeah, in, 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 terms of, in terms of those cracks appearing in the infrastructure of the labour movement. Yeah, it was a more delayed yeah. thing, I think. It didn't didn't happen until sort of 1916 when, when people started to get their act together. Um, so, at Leeds, it was a sort of gathering of um, delegates, sort of about just over a thousand delegates from uh, trade unions, trades councils, labour parties, various socialist societies, co- cooperative societies, and all, all, all the sort of... The sort of uh, galaxy of, of labour movement organisations that existed at the time um, it wasn't really formally backed by national trade union executives but nonetheless a lot of branches and particularly a lot of trades councils sent, sent delegates along um, the people sort of on the platform at the Leeds Convention were largely people that came from the tr- independent Labour Party tradition so not particularly trade union people but kind of ethical socialists the ILP was quite involved in um, a lot of ILP members were conscientious objectors they were in prison for refusing to fight so the ILP had its uh, sort of anti-war credentials much more so than the than the uh, the, the mainstream of the of the Labour Party and the, and the trade union movement um, so people like Ramsay MacDonald uh, people like Will Anderson who was MP for Sheffield Lattercliffe but there are also trade unions there as well. Uh, uh, again, I mentioned earlier Robert Williams, who's a, a, a transport workers, uh, one of the heads of the transport workers. Um, and the Leeds Convention passed motions, basically. And, and bear in mind, this is Ramsay MacDonald doing this, right? The Leeds Convention passed motions saying, <coughs> we should set up workers and soldiers councils in this country. <laughs> like, you know... That's Ramsay MacDonald. So that's the, the the atmosphere that they're operating in at this time. You know, people who are 
a million miles away from being very revolutionary are sort of borrowing the language of the Russian Revolution. They're very excited by it. But also it's worth it's worth dwelling on that as well because really for... Because as I say, people weren't really clear what was going on in Russia. Mm. Really, depending on who you were, a Workers' and Soldiers' Council could mean whatever you wanted it to mean. Mm. And for people like Ramsay MacDonald, it meant a sort of uh, mobilising committee to uh, sort of gather sort of anti-war sentiment. For a lot of people involved in the trade councils, what they thought the Workers' and Soldiers' Councils were the Soviets were were basically trade councils in Russia. Mm. Uh, for people who are involved in the, <laughs> I mean, for for any for you know, I know we're talking about a different context and trade councils at this time would have been very different bodies to what they are today. But anybody who's involved in kind of contemporary trade councils, the the idea that those those bodies are sort of proto-Soviets is just it takes a it takes a kind of admirable, I think it takes a sort of admirable leap of uh, imagination. Imagination, yeah. I don't know, man. Maybe the Soviets did spend forty-five minutes going over the minutes of that. <laughs> we don't. I, I don't know. They prob- we, I mean, well, they probably they did. Probably, actually, probably, yeah. <laughs> um, so, and various people that had been involved in the the sort of shop stewards movement uh, in the munitions factories that, that I taught that was behind the the strike that I mentioned earlier. Um, what they saw in the in the Soviets was that they were basically factory committees mm. along the lines of what they were developing in, in the munitions factories in this country. Now, there were factory committees in Russia, yeah. but the factory committees in the Soviets were not the same thing and, in fact, clashed quite frequently Indeed, on yeah. their, on their that's, own That's points. actually something that gets... There's often a lot of elision, mm. in, including in sort of left-wing... Um, historiographies of, of the Russian Revolution yeah. that, that blurs yeah. that distinction and they were actually they're kind of different forms really yeah know? yeah 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 because there's I mean there, there has been some good scholarship on the on the factories committees movement and we, I think we should put the uh, links to that in the, in the episode description and stuff I mean um, the, the factory committees were very much shop floor the Soviets was kind of aspiring to bit sort of uh, instruments of government gov- govern a, yeah, yeah. Govern a, a local area I guess um, so, but of course, people didn't know this. As I said, they didn't really know what was going on at the time. They were just excited by it. They they saw it as a great step forward and and all the rest of it. But not everyone. It's, it's important to mention, even at this stage. So this is even before the October Revolution happens. Not everyone in the British Labour movement is wildly enthusiastic about this development that's happening in Leeds in response to to Russia. So. Here's the reactions of the leadership of two of the most powerful unions in the country at the time. Um, the National Union of Railwaymen and uh, Ben Tillett's uh, Dockers Union. Um, so yeah, for, 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 for anyone who's not aware, those unions are ancestors of um, the RMT, my union, and of the TNG section of what what became Unite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. We say that in literally every episode. <laughs> Just stop banging on about it, Daniel. That and the teams business all going on about. We all know you're in the RMT, Daniel. <laughs> um, so the NUR in their, in their journal reporting from Leeds, they said that the conference indicates that a split in labour forces of the country seems imminent. It is impossible to run two organisations simultaneously with different underlying methods and ideas. Either we shall have to make up our minds to work through Parliament in the ordinary constitutional mm. way or leave it alone and seek our objective in some other fashion. 
It is significant that the pioneers of the new movement are just those men who have hitherto been strongest in their advocacy of a united Labour Party and who, because they cannot get their own way there and are in a hopeless minority, are now seeking to create a new and entirely unauthorised and unconstitutional way of securing it. So they're basically trashing this for being sort of um, anti-constitutional, mm. anti-parliamentary. And in a way, they perhaps unwittingly have a more accurate idea of what the Soviets actually are in, in Russia, mm. which is an attempt to sort of move beyond forms of parliamentary democracy, sort of, uh, sort of replace indirect democracy with direct democracy sort of thing. Uh, whereas the people who are actually advocating the setting up of Soviets in Britain don't that's not what they think they're advocating at all um so that was the railwaymen the dockers uh, were incredibly hostile to it the dockers wrote a long uh, in their in their journal i don't know whether it was written by tillett himself he was pretty pretty pro-war at this point uh, or someone else um they basically said this is a gathering of people who are pro-german who are traitors more or less <laughs> who have spent the entire war sabotaging the war effort, the people that are organising the strikes in the munitions factories, the people that are putting our soldiers' lives at risk at the front and all the rest of it. And they criticised as well the, the convention for not being representative and just sort of being self-selecting, mm. which it, in some ways is, is perhaps a legitimate criticism of it. Uh, although... Yeah, it, I mean, of course it was self-selecting. It was, a, you know, it was a... It was, it was, Select, it was selected from people who decided that they wanted to that they wanted be to in do solidarity yeah. with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, rather than being convened by the TUC for the purpose of, uh, of showing solidarity with the Russian Revolution or whatever, which perhaps the Dockers would have preferred. Um, but hilariously, they criticised it. That, uh, one of the things they criticised was there were between four and 500 delegates present, some of them of alien origin, <laughs> who were under 26 years of age. So the Dockers were criticising the Leeds Convention for being too youthful and for also having foreigners. Aliens, yeah, indeed, which, you know, f f for more on which, uh, check out episode three of this podcast. Yeah, although, of course, um, uh, last time we were talking about the great tradition of internationalism that the Dockers unions had, so obviously what, well, con contradictions there. What, well, indeed, what we're learning here is that history and consciousness is contradictory, which yeah, is and, very, very important. That's lesson. very complex. So they also criticised it for just uh, passing a load of sort of platitudinous motions and, and not being really serious. And, and quite tragically, they, they ended by saying... Um, so there's a, a reference to uh, James Connolly, the, the uh, Scottish-Irish socialist, um, who the previous year, of course, had been executed for his mm. part in the Easter Rising uh, in Dublin. Um, there was a sort of respect were paid to him at the Leeds Convention. And the dockers say... The reference to our late comrade Connolly struck a tragic note, and the audience for the first and only time felt the meaning of the Irish movement, but Connolly's memory was dishonoured in association with the people who called the conference. At least, and however wrong-headed it might have been, Connolly died as he had lived for his country. But these people appear to have no country. If you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Yeah. Now, that can only be read as a completely willful misreading of Connolly's politics, presumably because the Dockers had a large Irish membership who had a great deal of respect for Connolly, mm -hmm. Connolly not just as a, as a Republican, but also as a, as a Labour organiser. You know, indeed, like, uh, it's interesting that Ellie referenced the sort of nationalist rhetoric of the, of the current 
Tory government and you know it's important it's important to remember 1917 as a as a profoundly sort of internationalist moment you know it was consciously about ending war this war that was that was uh, pitting the working class of different nations against each other and as things developed and and, and as, as kind of Bolshevik politics developed later it also very much became about sort of freeing freeing the national minorities within the sort of Russian empire that that had been that had been oppressed so it's interesting that the um, kind of more conservative elements in the British Labour movement are specifically targeting it for that, for it, specifically targeting it for being internationalist, for being sort of insufficiently, uh, insufficiently na- nationalist and patriotic. Mm-hmm. So on on that note, of course, it wasn't just Britain where uh, the Labour movement took heart from what was happening in Russia, uh, but uh, all all around Europe and, and beyond as well. Um, in 1917, the spring summer of 1917, that quite a number of, of strikes sort of erupted in the belligerent uh, countries in, in, in the First World War. Uh, women textile workers in France uh, went on sort of strikes that were much more explicitly against the war than any strike in Britain ever mm. ever became at the time. Uh, it's worth uh, it's worth remembering as well. It, it was women workers going on strike that actually began the February Revolution in 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 Russia itself. Um, in uh, and and, and um, women workers' activity was also also key to the October Revolution mm-hmm. as well. In in August nineteen seventeen in Shirin, which um, within a couple of years would become a, a real centre of industrial militancy, uh, and, and another women workers' strike, um, they the bosses tried to um, get them back to work with uh, with concessions, and the women said, "To hell with bread, we want peace," which is a. a Nice sort of echo of the Bolshevik own slogan mm. of, of around that time of, of bread, peace, and land. Mm. Um, so, not only were strikes occurring in these countries, but they were taking on more and more, not not so much in Britain, unfortunately, but in other countries, taking on more and more of an explicitly anti-war character at the time. Uh, beyond Europe, there was great enthusiasm in Australia in the Australian Labour movement. Uh, where the Labour Party had actually been in power in Australia when the First World War broke out and had kind of fractured sort of on the question of being in power when, a, when an imperialist war occurred. Um, and there was, a, there was a, a move then within the Australian Labour Party to by people who had been industrial militants to kind of reorient the Australian Labour Party to, uh, to more radical politics. Uh, in no small part uh, inspired by the Russian Revolution. Um, but as I, as I mentioned with the question of, of Soviets, like people at this point, and arguably since as well, they were sort of seeing in the Russian Revolution what they wanted to see. If you wanted it to be a sort of, this is a ushering in of a sort of liberal democratic sort of uh, great uh, paradise, then it could be that. If you wanted to see this is an ushering in of uh, workers control in the factories, then it could be that. And of course, it, it was all those things, and and sort of none of them as well at the, at the same time. Um, so that brings us to the second of 1970s revolutions, which both at the time and since is, of course, a lot more controversial uh, within the labour movement and also in, in broader society. Um, so for a while, things sort of carried on as, as the, the labour movement sort of being in broad sympathy with, with things that were happening in Russia. Um, when the October Revolution happened, it almost immediately created a great sort of schism where immediately some parts of the labour movement were saying 
this is a step too far mm. now, or this is now become anti-democratic, or and and that's where you get the sort of uh, what becomes or the the beginnings of of the in in the political side of the labour movement, the the split then between social democracy and, and communism, which is sort of beyond the remit of this podcast to to really talk about that because we're talking more about the trade union side. Um, Although you know it's. I mean, obviously, we, 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 we're not able with the sort of um, parameters we've set for ourselves to really do justice to that debate, but also you can't, you can't entirely sort of artificially separate those things. And, no, and, that, and that debate about sort of reform versus revolution, sort of second international social democracy versus, you know, what came to be third international revolutionary socialism, obviously echoed in... The, the industrial wave of the labour movement as well as the political yeah yeah, yeah. and if, so so one of the things that um a sort of cut sort of common sort of thread uh, through all the countries that i'm sort of talking about is that i mean we've we've mentioned we've mentioned this before in, in previous episodes although we haven't we still haven't done a sort of dedicated episode on it but before the first world war there was a great deal of industrial militancy in, in pretty much all of these countries to, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and it was, it's, it's come to be known as, as, as kind of the syndicalist movement mm-hmm. or, you know, there were, the, the, there were syndicalist organisations um, or organisations that described themselves as revolutionary unions or revolutionary industrial unions. Um, all, all of which, it should be said, are sort of contested terms and yeah it's a sort of it's a sort of contested tradition I yeah think it's fair to say yeah but what you can say about it without getting too much into it what you can say about it is there were there were there were, there were huge levels of industrial militancy um right the way up until the outbreak of war and war didn't war sort of submerged it but it didn't sort of cut it dead i mean even in britain uh, in the early months of the war there was there were still strikes there was, in the south wales miners in in early in 1915 um, basically, uh, successfully struck despite the uh, the sort of wartime legislation that was being brought in to to, to prevent that sort of thing from happening. Um, so it was it was never completely submerged, and then of course the Russian Revolution gives the confidence for people to to coupled with the the conditions of war gives the confidence for people to to start sort of more openly agitating, and these pre-war movements sort of come back into focus and these by and large are the people in the industrial wing of the movement who are the most enthusiastic about what's happening in Russia so people who had been syndicalists or industrial unionists or still possibly still describe themselves as syndicalist industrial unionists um, something like the Irish Transport and General Workers Union which was Jim Larkin's uh, union um, the Irish Transport in general sort of came out in favour of of sort of sort of have a sort of pro Soviet position, um, led huge May Day marches um, during the Irish War of Independence, which began not long after the First World War finished. Um, the Irish Transport in general uh, was involved in organising a lot of strikes. There were also a lot of workplace occupations mm. in Ireland as well. There were also a lot of seizures of land mm. from uh, from the aristocrats. Um, Anglo-Irish aristocrats um, the Irish Transport in general amazingly grew from a sort of rump of 6,000 members in 1916 to 100,000 members by 1920 so there was 
alongside um, the War of Independence in Ireland, there was a, this sort of huge social crisis, um, and one of the major players was a trade union which was sort of very, very strongly in sympathy with 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 the Russian Revolution. And, and, and I think that that gives you a real that that sort of immense. Expl- you know, explosion and upheaval around uh, you know very radical trade union organisation gives you a sense of the period uh, of being one of sort of immense kind of uh, activity and and an incredibly sort of febrile time. And I think it's it's important just to emphasise that because I think a lot of the um, dominant historiographies of this period just sort of miss all that out. You know, it's just it's about it's about the the psalm and Passchendaele and the heroic sacrifice of the young men who died there, and the fact that the the war was taking place in conditions of, and in many ways directly catalyzing um, conditions of just immense social crisis and upheaval all over Europe, are sort of yeah just just brushed out of the picture. And indeed, the the, the mutinies in the, in the, of, of working class soldiers that happened at mm. the end of the first. I mean. Pretty much every army, well, every army was affected by it to a greater or lesser degree. Um, some armies com- almost completely collapsed. The Austro-Hungarian army almost completely collapsed. Mm-hmm. Working-class soldiers went back to where they came from and set up workers and soldiers councils mm-hmm. across across Austria-Hungary. The collapse of the German military and a mutiny in the German fleet is arguably what actually ended the First World mm. War, which is another thing that gets written out. It wasn't that they just ran out of shells and decided to stop <laughs> doing it. It was like there was a there was a, a Republican revolution in Germany that forced mm. the Kaiser out and again directly inspired by events that had happened in Russia just, just a year or so earlier. Um so just to just to go back to Ireland for a second, there was there was an example of uh in Ireland of something that actually uh, called itself, referred to itself as a Soviet in, mm. in Limerick in Ireland, which was um, as an in- interesting example as well of how the uh, the Irish War of Independence and the sort of sort of social struggle kind of overlapped here because it was um, it was a sort of repression of the Republican movement in Limerick that sparked the Limerick Soviet off, but the Limerick Soviet developed into something that it, it wasn't just an Irish Republican. Thing it was a it was an attempt by the the local trade union movement to like run the town take power yeah, yeah. they even printed their own Very money, money yeah, that's right yeah. yeah um I don't know if any of it's still in circulation or, or whether it's accepted as legal if we if we if we do have any listeners in Limerick uh, let us know go go into your local Tesco and see if you can pay with. Uh, some of the money printed by the Limerick Soviet the, the Trades Council says I, <laughs> I can buy my shopping with this <laughs> so yeah so you have the Irish Transport in general which had been which had been led by um, syndicalists industrial unionists among others um, you had uh, people like Alfred Rosner who mm. was a, a, a key French syndicalist became very enthusiastic supporter of, of the Russian Revolution uh, you had people in England and Scotland who had been heavily involved in the the shop stewards committees that I mentioned earlier in the munitions factories who became the sort of core of the sort of communist trade unionists in, in England and Scotland. And and, and in, in America also, um, I mean, we've talked quite a bit in, in previous episodes about the, the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, and a number of key IWW leaders probably most prominently Big Bill Hayward, who's 
perhaps the, the most famous leader of, of the IWW in its sort of heroic period, and was an incredibly enthusiastic uh, supporter of uh, the Russian Revolution, uh, the October Revolution in particular, really welcomed it. I think his phrase was, um, uh, what's happening in Russia, you know, what the Bolsheviks are doing is, is it's the IWW all feathered out. Yeah. So he saw in what was happening in Russia and in, in, in the sort of practice of the Bolsheviks, a sort of... Um, Development and a, and a full expression of what he'd been trying to do with the IWW in in America, and that's that was a sentiment that was also echoed by people like Victor Griffuel, who'd been the leader of the um, the CGT, which was the kind of mass syndicalist union in France, and he talked about the Russian Revolution in very similar terms. I mean, it's actually there's a quite a funny article. Well, I think it's quite funny. <laughs> weird sense of humor. It's quite a funny article that he writes about kind of what the Bolsheviks are doing in the October Revolution where he sort of he kind of takes credit for it almost he says like <laughs> Le Lenin Lenin has clearly been paying attention to what we've been doing and saying in what you know to what we were doing and saying in France in our in the heroic period of the CGT and he's he's putting that into practice now so you know mm -hmm. it's, it, it's 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 uh, you know nice to see we've we've had an influence yeah. um but but I think you see from that how you know, a really significant section of the kind of leadership of the revolution unionist and, and syndicalist movement saw a, a kind of full a fuller expression of, 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 of their politics and development of their politics in, in October 1917. Yeah, yeah, which is which is completely understandable in the circumstances and and again, as I say, because I mean, it, it wasn't clear what was going on and, and, and until people started to actually go over there which they were able to do sort of after the war finished and a lot of a lot of the a lot of the people we're talking about went and visited Soviet Russia and sort of Bill Haywood Bill Haywood died, well, died in well, Russia yeah, yeah was, uh, was exiled there <laughs> that, wasn't he um, so there's a the kind of there's the kind of split in the labour movement that I'm talking about but then I want to talk about sort of wrap up um, a sort of brief moment of unity once again, which occurred a couple of years afterwards. I mean, we can't. It's, it's not the intention of this episode to do a, a sort of potted history of the whole Russian Revolution. Like, you, there's other places you can get that. Like, there's other, other podcasts you can you can listen to about about all that stuff. They're, they're not as good, but you can you can, <laughs> you can listen to them. And uh, you know, you could, if you're feeling old fashioned, you can read some books about it. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, whatever, whatever, you, whatever you want to do. Um, but or look at a meme about the, it, yeah, which is yeah. which is just as good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can definitely get yeah. all of that information into a meme. Yeah. <laughs> so so. Just to just to keep with the theme of the sort of trade union responses to to the events in Russia, so obviously the Russian Revolution wasn't just left alone to develop on, it, on its own volition. It was that would have been good. That, it would have been, <laughs> uh, yeah, God, if only. Um, it was immediately um, under threat from the, the 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 powers of Europe and the rest of the world, who having seen. Uh, the the social movements, the industrial movements that it was inspiring in their own countries, uh, basically resolved to extinguish it mm. from existence, um, and did this by supporting the the czarists, the monarchists, the white armies as they were known, um, in launching a civil war against the the, the Soviet state. Um, it, now this, this this is interesting because even even though a lot of people in the trade union movement in the labour movement may have opposed the Bolsheviks. They might have um, 
they might have seen the Bolsheviks coming to power as, as an undemocratic coup, or they might have seen the Soviets as something anti-constitutional or something that, that might be okay for the Russians to do, but it's not. we're not going to have any trouble with it over here. But it doesn't necessarily follow that all of those people were in, in, enthusiastically wanted the revolution to be, like, drowned in blood. Mm. Right? There were many, many people who vehemently disagreed with the Bolsheviks on all sorts of things, but who were still adamant that the, that the Russian working class should be allowed to develop its own... Its own way of doing things and and and, and, it, and who sort of um recognized that in some sense the working class in russia was in, in power and if, mm. it, and if it could be allowed to just continue that experiment then then something good might might come out of it um so in britain um good old winston churchill britain's national hero winston churchill whose uh, <laughs> whole political career and <laughs> until 1939 and large parts of it afterwards was a complete disaster. Um, <laughs> he was the probably the most vociferous um, exponent exponent of uh, the British state militarily supporting the White Armies, and some British mm. troops were la- were landed in in various parts of Russia to give support to the Whites. Um, he was also uh, quite keen that. Uh, British arms and armaments should be shipped to uh, the whites and also to the to the Polish government, which was uh, which was opposing the the Bolsheviks and uh, and at war with the Bolsheviks. Um, this led to a a big response from the from the trade union movement, which showed a a, a so the sort of unity that existed very briefly early in 1917, when basically everyone was really on the same page and sort of enthusiastic about what was going on. Um, there was an un- unprecedented level of unity in the in what became known as the hands off Russia movement. Mm. I mean, it wasn't plain sailing. There were definitely those who were more enthusiastic than others, and, and all sorts of disagreements. Um, it's councils of action, as they were known, were formed in 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 different parts of the country. Uh, the the official circular of how to form your council of action says very pointedly. They are not in any way to usurp the powers of trade union executives, especially so far as the withdrawal of labour is concerned. <laughs> so you can see even in that, the trade union leaderships having a, a sort of paranoia there that these things would develop. They were supposed to just be sort of, this is where you get your information from about what's going on in Russia and how we can coordinate solidarity activity. But they, they obviously felt like, oh, if we're not careful, these things could develop into a sort of alternative... Uh, union organisation mm. that, mm. that might decide to do things by itself sort of thing um, famously most famously uh, dockers refused to load arms on a ship called the Jolly George which is a kind of darkly hilarious name for a ship full of, <laughs> a ship full of munitions um, which was bound for Poland and the National Union of Railwaymen the same union that had so vociferously opposed the Leeds Convention and, the, and, 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 and all that um, they instructed their members not to move any arms bound for Poland uh, on uh, in, in the same journal that they'd denounced the, mm. the Leeds Convention in. Um, they said, there is a higher and greater reason still for Russia to be given peace. She has developed an entirely new form of democracy. And whilst it is one which is at present on trial and with which we're not yet fully acquainted, it is only due to the spirit of freedom which trade unionists above all others ought to value that she should be given an opportunity to develop in accordance with her own desires. 
Russian democracy bids fair to become the greatest in the world. And it will be a good thing for the future of the British working classes and their children if that democracy is a friendly one towards this country. It is obvious that only the working classes can save Russia. Stirring so, stuff. Yeah, I mean, and and this this from a this is this is this is a union which is not in the tradition of revolutionary unionism mm. that we were just talking mm. about, and a, and a leadership which certainly isn't. Mm. Um, who, as as I, as I say, are basically saying we don't really agree with everything they're doing, but. They should be free to to, to, do to, it. to get on with it, you know. And I think there's a strong argument to say that greater British military involvement in the Russian Civil War was definitely thwarted by the threat of a, a, a poten- potentially the threat of a general strike. Mm. If, if 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 Churchill had decided to commit larger larger numbers of, of troops to Russia, I think he wouldn't have simply wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, so that's as far as I'm going to go up, sort of chronologically. But maybe just to end with a few minutes of just talking about, like, again, as, as we do tend to talk about when I ramble on about history for ages, then I pose the question, this is all nice and interesting, but why should any of us care? You know, <laughs> what, trade unionists in 21st century Britain, what's this got to do with us? Sort mm-hmm. of thing. So I think, I mean, you know, Daniel mentioned the, the question of internationalism earlier and, and how impressive this sort of internationalism seems to us now and, and, and that sort of thing. I don't know if there's any other things that you guys picked up on that you want to talk about. I mean, I, th- I think for me, one of the key things here is is the question of the sort of the political horizons of the Labour movement because you can see throughout all of these debates on both sides, you know, the people in the NUR leadership and the Dockers Union leadership who are saying, "Oh, we're not, sh- we're not sure about this Soviet democracy business," and you know, getting rid of parliaments, Th- through through to you know the Griffiths and Haywards and the people who are more enthusiastic about it, and the you know the people who went on to found third international affiliated communist parties in mm-hmm. in these countries. You can see throughout all these debates just the, the greatly expanded political horizon. Of the labour movement, of the trade union movement, you know, this was a movement that was grappling with questions of how the working class can come to power. Um, and as you noted, Ed, you know, that's what even the, the, the even the elements that were kind of more critical of what was going on in Russia, that's sort of that's what they saw in the experiment of 1917. It was about a labour movement, a working class movement conquering social and economic power. Um, and perhaps more than any, you know, perhaps perhaps more than anything else, like that's that's something that we need to. We need to rebuild, um, expand the political horizons of the labour movement beyond, how, you know, how do we how do we fight austerity? How do we stop? How do we stop cuts? Beyond, beyond things like that, I'm not saying those those basic sort of elementary day to day struggles aren't important. Of course they are, and in, in many ways, the process of, of expanding the horizons necessarily involves fighting those kind of struggles in a, in, in 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 a vigorous way. But you know. That's what we. That's what we're aspiring to get back to: a, a, a labour movement, a trade union movement, a wider working class movement that that has expansive political horizons and that seeks power. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 seek that seeks a that seeks a a, a, a transformed society and that seeks to and um, and, and expand beyond beyond national borders in in its absolutely yeah well, because mm-hmm. you know the running right through all this stuff is 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 the. The assumption that the business of the Russian working class is also the business yeah. of us as well, and we are invest. You know, the miners who have tears in their eyes, and both them and the 
the leadership of, of the Dockers or whatever. Mm. They're very, for very different reasons, perhaps, but very invested in what happens in Russia and very much like care about it. And, uh, and, uh, it's not just a sort of curiosity of something that's going on, uh, nor is it something that you're just going to chuck some money to and yeah. say good luck to it. You know, it, it has real bearing on the way that you behave as a trade unionist in your own. Yeah, and you can, and you know, and you can, and you can see people sort of sort of grappling with it with it in a, in a in a very detailed way and you know there clearly were quite sophisticated debates going on in the late movements of many countries about what was going on in Russia some people were critical some people were enthusiastic uh, but 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 they were really getting to grips with sort of what was happening there and I think often in contemporary labor movement solidarity that you know either it just sort of doesn't exist or it's very tokenistic or it's sort of you know it's it's not it's not possible to uh, there's a, there's a very sort of uncritical attitude where it's not it's not possible to be in solidarity with something and and try and get to grips with it critically. You know, obviously in the in the nineteen seventeen context, I've been very much on the side of people who are enthusiastic about October and what the Bolsheviks are doing. But it's good that there was a debate about that in the British Labour movement and that, that it was sort of related to seriously rather than. Uh, you know, in, either in a tokenistic way or in a sort of, um, in a, in a way that ignored the actual detail of what was going on. Mm. There's something really I couldn't figure out how to word it though. There's something really nice in that quote about that in that phrase about um, it, this is to do with freedom, and we trade yeah, unionists yeah. feel po- possibly feel that more than anybody else in society. And then like sh- sort of talking about like. Because you talk a lot about, like, workers taking power, and I know what you mean by that, but it might be worth pointing out that, like, this wasn't just... You know, these people, like, were genuinely, no matter how much it could have gone wrong, fighting for the freedom of humanity, like, for the whole... The the freedom of the whole of humanity. Mm. um, For, like, sexual freedom, for intellectual freedom, for all... They were fighting for the freedom of humanity. There is something in that, but I can't think of how to phrase it. I think you just did. I think, <laughs> I think you just phrased it very well. I mean, again, I think that, I think that kind of ties back into the point about political horizons. Yeah. And for a trade unionist in our context, like fighting the kind of struggles that we're fighting, you know, we're we're active in um, conditions where the labour movement is pretty small, even relative. Well, that's in relative terms. You know, it's half the size in, in Britain and the country where we're active. It's half the size it was in at its peak in 1979-ish. Um, strikes are at very low levels. You know, we're, we're often we're fighting around what feel like very sort of, not tri- trivial's not the word, but you know, it's just, we're kind of running to stand still. We're fighting defensive, we're fighting defensive battles over very immediate economic issues. And a context where the horizons expanded, you know, beyond, beyond the workplace and into the sort of terrain of like, Society and, and as Ellie says, you know, social freedom. The idea that the labour movement is 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 the that that's the movement that's going to be the kind of carrier of these struggles for mm. human emancipation mm. is, is is you know it's difficult to it's, it's kind of difficult to imagine that in yeah, your head. It's difficult. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's difficult to connect with it. Yeah. But I think that's look. That's why these histories are important. And I, and I know Ed you've been critical in the past and I think rightly of the quite mechanical attitude that sometimes exists on the left of looking at a historical episode and then saying in a very sort of mechanical way what are the lessons for today and obviously and, 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 and often 
that that basically ends up being well this good thing happened in the past and we should try and do this good thing again which doesn't really tell us much but at the same time I think just looking at and relearning and restudying and kind of trying to integrate some of the spirit of, of these moments is just just on its own terms is is really important so we can't, we're constantly sort of pushing back against the narrowing down of our horizons. I think it's also, I mean, a, a final sort of historic, historiographical point, I suppose, is, is like a lot of, a lot of the history of, of the Russian Revolution and responses to it around the world, and it, it has been, I, I think until recently, still been very like traditional history of like important, what important people, usually men, mm said and did yeah. about it and even like like very very uh very like sympathetic very, very pro-bolshevik histories of the revolution it'll be like lenin and trotsky decided to do this and that was the right choice and that was great and they were vindicated and and lenin and trotsky then decided to do it. and and it, a lot even a lot of that stuff it, it, it writes out millions of people who were who all had this Worldview mm. of the the sort of expansive worldview that 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 you guys are both talking about. You know, they all they'd all they'd all learned that through being active in a labour movement, an organised labour movement, whether in Russia or in Germany or in France or in this country or whatever. You know, and there were millions of these people, and and sometimes even the even the sympathetic history. It buys in to the to the traditional way of looking at it, which is that it was a, it was a small number of like clever people who decided mm. to do this thing, and and what it, it wasn't. It was million. It was millions of people. Some of them were very supportive of it. Some of them were more critical of it. Some, but I think for a brief period of a few years at this point in Europe and and more widely as well around the world, the rank and file of the labour movement. And also a lot of its leadership had seen something that seemed to them like this is what we've been working for for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And my God, it might happen. And even the ones who were critical of it, they were critical because, sometimes because, Jesus Christ, I hope they don't fuck it up, you know, because this is such a big opportunity. An opportunity that... That, I mean, none of us have lived through a period that has presented anything like this sort of, this sort of opportunity. But an opportunity to like, like Daniel mentioned earlier, that the labour movement would take economic and political power in society, and that's that. That should be what we're about, I think. Yeah. Whether you whatever disagreements you have about how you get from here to there, that was that that was what seemed to be happening in nineteen seventeen. Uh, that's about it for episode 8 of Labour Days um, in this episode as you'll know as you've uh, just been listening uh, we were looking at responses um, from trade unionists and trade unions uh, pre predominantly although not exclusively in Europe to the events of the Russian Revolution in 1917 um, had a really fantastic presentation kind of setting out uh, a lot of that history from uh, from Ed um, with uh, occasional interjections from, uh, from, from me and Ellie so uh, thanks to everyone for listening. We said at the start of the show that we'd put up some suggested reading in the episode description for the stuff we've been talking about, but also places you can go to read more about the role of um, uh, trade unions in Russia in the events of the revolution itself. 
Um, we're not exactly sure when this episode is going to be broadcast, uh, so by the time um, it's up and you're listening to it, um, the events that I'm about to mention might already have taken place, but on uh, Friday the 17th and Saturday the 18th of November, Ed is going up to um, his home county of Yorkshire to participate in two events organised by uh, Yorkshire and Humber TUC, um, who've invited Labour Days to kind of host some panels about young workers' uh, organisation and, and, and strikes. Uh, Kelly Rogers, uh, who we interviewed on the very first episode of this podcast, who's a, a, a sacked uh, Ritzy cinema worker and, and trade union rep who's been involved in their strikes. She's speaking on those panels alongside workers and organisers from McDonald's who uh, were involved in the, the McStrike, which we talked about in episode six. Um, so Ed's going to be kind of hosting those panels. There's one in Leeds on the 17th, one in uh, Sheffield on the 18th. The, the Leeds one uh, will not probably pass a resolution in favour of the <laughs> of workers and soldiers' deputies. Again, her, the horizon's narrowing again. <laughs> what, come on, man. Like, have a bit of ambition. But hey, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, we just wanted to thank uh, Yorkshire and Humber TUC for inviting us to, to host those. We're really um, honoured and... and happy to be getting involved and we're also hoping to record both of those panels um, so depending on what sort of format they come out in they might be released as, as sort of future episodes um, I think that's about it uh, thanks again to everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you in episode 9 was presented by Ellie Clark, Daniel Randall and Ed Mustill with additional research by Holly Smith and produced by Liam McNulty. Thanks to Casper Tanner for the extra mic. Find us on, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Labour Days podcast, on Twitter at Labour underscore days and download us on iTunes. I thought you were gonna sort of uh, act it out, you know. You the, between the two of you, you you do you do the voices of all the major figures in the in 1917 in Russia, and uh, and we'd and we'd sort of do a dramatic. So is that not what we're oh, doing? We can do that, yeah. That's fine. I've got an entire script. My Russian yeah. accent isn't actually up to scratch. The script oh. that you said oh, you did you did forget <laughs> about it then. Let's, let's just do the other thing. Okay, so hang on. Wait, was that a joke? Yeah, that was a yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't re- I, I didn't realise. I thought you were actually making a because that was that was funny. If I'd have realised you were joking, I would have. I'm, I'm, I've kind of ruined that. Now. Yeah, it's you could have. That's going to be very dry. You could have got into on the on the whole. Yeah, yeah. it was a bit. Um, I completely. Should we if try you, and re- if, if you read, try and recreate if, that? If you read my notes, you would have realised. Well, well, I did. Yeah, but I was I about did, to yeah. say there's nothing. There was nothing in the script that suggested it was going to be like. That. <laughs> We'll, we'll just we'll, let's just get past it. Okay. But do you want me to do you want me to give you the lead in again? We can you can try and you can try and guys come. <laughs> Cut all this out. <laughs> um. <laughs>
Actually, no, it's okay. I'll just. No, go on. Say it again. Say it again. It'll be funny. And say it's funnier the second time. What a lecture! I thought we were going to be performing it, and you were going to be doing the voices. Say it again. I'll do that. It will be funnier the second time. I promise. What the what is it that you've just said? Uh, I've just said I'll do it again. Uh, so that's time for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us.